Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I want to return to Second uh, Peter again today, trying desperately to get out of the second chapter of Second Peter, and I think we made good progress the last time I stood before you. I hope to close it out in this sermon and maybe get into chapter 3 a little bit. Chapter 2 is really dealing with the issue of false prophets and deception and uh, the dangers of those things, the prevalence of them. That's the part that I've mentioned last time I spoke that is kind of unpleasant about this. When you really think about how the Lord teaches on the prevalence of false prophets and then apply that to the world you see around you, it's some pretty disturbing conclusions that you may come to as a result of that. And yet we shouldn't shy away from it. It's something the Lord taught and something we are to know. Uh, We're supposed to be throughly furnished unto every good work by this book. So it's important that we know it. It's important that we embrace the things we find in the Bible, even if we find them to be unpleasant or to have some unpleasant ramifications in our lives. As we come to the end of this chapter, we end up on a few verses that I think are somewhat controversial among Christian people. They may be even somewhat controversial among primitive Baptist people. But I'm going to set before you a case today on what I think these verses mean. And the uh, preview of that is that I think they apply to us. I think they apply to God's people. And many have opted to apply them to someone other than God's people. And I'm going to try to set that case before you today. I'm admitting up front this is a controversial passage of Scripture, and you'll find differences of opinion on exactly how this is to be interpreted and applied. However, I'll point out that it's stated in the context of having warned God's people about false prophets for the preceding 19 verses. See, so it's in that context, which makes it very odd to me If we were to take that and then say, well, this final part is really talking about people who are not God's people. When he's warned you for 19 verses about the danger of false prophets. So to me, I would say that the controversy over these verses kind of revolves around who are these people that are being discussed? Are they false converts who are kind of discovered by their departure from the faith? Or are they deceived saints? That's really the question. I believe they're deceived saints, not false converts who are exposed in this. And I think that one of the ways that's supported is through the context that we find these statements made in. Again, 19 preceding verses of warning God's people about the dangers of false prophets. So to me, the false convert versus deceived saints argument revolves around, is this an FYI or an FYA? Now, these verses just for your information, right? FYI, and we'll tell you what's going to happen to the false converts. Or is it an FYA? Is this for your admonition? Is it a warning about the potential for you to be deceived and God's people to be deceived in things? I believe it is an FYA. I believe this is for our admonition. And it's a warning because it's something that we can fall victim to. Now let me read the verses and maybe it'll come into view a little more once I've set them before you. I'm going to start back up in uh, verse 18 and it's speaking of the false prophets. 
And then we'll pick up 20, 21, and 22 after we read those preceding two verses. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Now there's some people who are allured, tempted, drawn into their false teaching. And how are those people described in this text? Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. I submit to you that the plain reading of that is that's talking about God's people. It's talking about converts to the truth, people who had clean escape. It doesn't say these are people who, because they were kind of hanging around with Christian people, they had kind of escaped. These people clean escaped, right? And I believe only God's people are capable of being in that condition. It's talking about how the false prophets allure. And how do they do it? They allure through the lusts of the flesh. False prophets work on the carnal mind, right? They take the remaining old man, that sin nature that you have, and they work with things that the old man is ready and eager to embrace, and it uses them to slide you subtly off of the truth. You see, the old man, sinful things, carnal things, appeal to everyone on some level. Even God's people who have the indwelling Holy Spirit maintain a sin nature that can be appealed to by carnal things. So how could that be possible, brother? You seem to be downgrading the Spirit's work in us. No, I'm telling you the truth of the Spirit's work in you is that a regenerate person kind of has dual natures, if you will. They have a spiritual self that is born of the Spirit of God, and they maintain a carnal nature. And you are always in that state as a Christian of trying to manage, you know, your own urges. And you must think, is this really from the Spirit of God? Is this urge a spiritual urge? Or is this just my carnal mind rising up, right? If your spouse or your child or someone you work with does something that quickly makes you angry and you quickly rise up and say something about it, you have to question, well, is that my spiritual mind? Am I so spiritually in tune that I am rising up in righteous indignation and I'm going to get right on top of this matter right away? I find that difficult to believe. I think that in the vast majority of instances, if not all instances, those types of reactions come from the carnal mind. They are just what wells up in us. Now, speaking back to your spouse may not be the issue you have. But there's something out there. Most, most of God's people have something where they say, I really struggle with this. When this sort of thing happens, I just immediately react in an unspiritual way. And I'm submitting that before you as evidence of the remaining carnal nature that exists within God's people. I mean, if regeneration eradicated your sin nature, you would not sin. Follow me? If all that was in you was the regenerate Spirit of God within you, and you had absolutely no carnal nature, no, nothing to lure you towards sin. It was only the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Well, I submit you would not sin. And, and then salvation would be evidenced not just by faith, as we say, or some of the fruits of the Spirit. It would be evidenced by living in sinless perfection. Now, I don't know if any of you out there want to raise your hand and say, well, I think I'm there. I'd like to come up and give testimony. 
Well, I have a couple of questions. Can we cross-examine? May we bring your spouse into the equation? I mean, I don't have to go very far. By the way, I don't see anybody out there that's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to come up there and give my testimony of sinless perfection. That is a crazy notion. But it is one that has cropped up in Christendom. There are movements within Christianity that over the years have said, look, you can get to such a place in your sanctification to where you don't sin anymore. Sinless perfection. That was taught very prominently. And it's not true. It's not true. I don't doubt for a moment that we can all be better than we are, right? I'm not trying to give you an excuse to go commit sin or to rebel against God. I'm not saying that. We can all improve, and disciples are to be learning and constantly striving to be better and to serve the Lord better. That's something we ought to do. But we can't turn a blind eye to the remaining sin nature because it's taught all through the New Testament. It's taught all through the Bible. And it's the battle you're going to be in as a Christian in this life. That's who I believe this is addressing. Verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Now look, Christian people can find themselves in the bondage of some sin matter. That is clearly attested to in the Bible. It's important that we understand that this is a warning to us. Because if we just say, well, he's fixing to tell us about the non-elect, the unregenerate. These people are bound for hell. This is how it's going to turn out for them. You are missing the point of this admonition. You're saying, well, this is just informing me about what's going to happen to those people. It's not. It's warning you about how you can be allured by false ideas and taken down a path that they will tell you, this is going to set you at liberty. You're going to be set at liberty by hearing this. Christian freedom, we're going to, we're going to preach it to you. We're going to take you out of the stodgy old-time religion of your forefathers and all that stuff that's in the New Testament, which, I mean, that was an old Jewish fable anyway. We've got more modern ways of doing things. I mean, if the Apostle Paul had had a MacBook Pro, he probably would have written different things on it. This is kind of the mindset. Right? We have matured beyond the level of having to take these Jewish fables of the New Testament and understand them in some way that maybe your forefathers did because they were just ignorant people anyway. That's kind of the, the notion. It astonishes me, honestly, that our grade school educated grandparents could read the King James Bible and not have any trouble understanding what it says. And our grad school educated children seem to need new translations because it's way too difficult for them to understand. That is ridiculous. We're constantly trying to modernize and improve and, and convince ourselves that we've come so far down the road that we need to discard certain portions of the Bible. And so a lot of these things don't apply to us. Well, I believe this applies to us and... It's important to recognize this. The word here is overcome. You can be overcome by something. You can be deceived and overcome by deception. I mean, every instance of sin is that in some degree, right? I mean, we tend to think about these, oh, he was overcome in sin. We think of it as big carnal issues. You know, this guy got off... He started drinking too much, or he used drugs, or he ran around on his wife. He was overcome in this horrible, big sin. 
And we tend to regard it in those big ways like that. Those are very public and salacious. But I'm going to suggest to you that anytime you're sinning, your spiritual mind is being overcome by some carnal urge that says, I just want to do this instead of what God would have me do. I think it's evident that we can be overcome, that we often are overcome, as evidenced by our remaining sin. And I think... The trouble with applying this only to the non-elect is that it denies the degree to which one of God's people can be overcome. There are tremendous testimonies in the Bible about severe overcomings that happen to God's people. And uh, it's a word of warning. By the way, when you're overcome, you might think this is going to set me free. That's what most people think when they drink, use drugs, get into other forms of unprofitable recreation that are carnal. They usually think, I just need a little freedom in my life. Everything's too restricting, right? The laws are too restrictive. My marriage is too restrictive. The social mores on me are too restrictive. And if I could just step into this new realm here, I'm going to have some freedom in this. I'm I'm free to do as I want. I'm going to be free. That's the lure And yet this freedom actually leads you into bondage. It leads you into the bondage of sin. It's a warning to us. Now look at verse 20. And as I read these next three verses, I want us to pay very close attention to a few statements that are made within these verses that I think underscore the fact that this is talking to God's people. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now look, have these people escaped or not escaped? For if after they have escaped, these people are escaped the pollutions of the world. And how did they do it? Was it just through a minor moral reformation? They started going to church and quit drinking it was a minor, temporary, insincere, moral reformation. That was, the ma- that was the manner of their escape. Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? They know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the means whereby they escaped these things in the first place. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. They are again entangled therein. See this? If they were unregenerate through all this, they've never escaped those things. They've never been unentangled from them. But this text is saying they're again entangled in those things. You follow me? So they've escaped. (laughs) They've got knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how they escaped. And they are again entangled because they were entangled in it before, had escaped it, and now they're entangled in it again. That to me seems very evidently pointing to the fact you're talking about God's people. You're talking about regenerate people here that this happens to. It's a dangerous and frightful thing to think about. I mean, there's a certain comfort, by the way. We go back to the original thing. Is this for your information or for your admonition? Well, if you just say this is just an FYI about people who are unregenerate, not born again, this is kind of how it goes with them. 
There's a certain comfort in that. If you're one of God's people, you could say, well, that's them. It's not me. It's talking about them and not me, right? I don't really have to worry about this level of deception. I don't have to worry about the allure that might lead me down this path of deception. I don't have to worry about that because it's not talking about me. I understand the comfort of wanting to embrace that position. I just don't think you could take the language here and make it say that. I mean, what you would have to do to make this work, you'd have to say, for after they seem to have escaped the pollutions of the world, through what seemed to be a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in and overcome, but not really overcome because they never really got out of it in the first place. Right? The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Verse 21, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Did they know the way of righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ by which they escaped these things? Did they know it? It says they knew it. Not to have known the way of righteousness. Then after they have known it, have they known it? Right? The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He can't know it because they're spiritually discerned. This says they've known it. That's a frightening recognition here. It's talking about this could happen to any of us. Any of us in here who have a profession of faith, regenerate children of God, you're being warned about something that can happen in your life if you're not careful. For after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment, you can't turn from something you weren't turned to at one point, right? That was delivered unto them. (laughs) These gospel commandments and things they were supposed to do, was, it was delivered to them. That's one of the things we say. The Bible's written to God's people. The gospel addresses God's people. It was delivered to them. You look on the envelope, it's got their name on it. It was delivered directly to them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, I think that's the verse that many people use to try to say, well, see, what that means is that it just revealed that you were ever and always those things anyway, right? That's kind of the way that they want to use that verse. But again, it's important to understand the reality of the regenerate state. It does not eliminate your dog-like and vomit-seeking nature. That carnal will that remains within you and will until the day you die. It's still in there. It's evidenced by the fact that you're going to admit, yeah, I sin sometimes. And it can be amplified to such a degree. You can be deceived to such a degree that you begin to just manifest all that sort of objectionable behavior in a very horrible way. What would you have to do with verse 21 to make it apply to the non-elect, unregenerate? You'd have to say, for it had been better for them not to have seemed to have known the way of righteousness by external appearance, and to turn from the Holy Commandment, though they had never really turned from it at all, right? I think those phrases in verse 20 and 21, they have escaped. They have knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled. That means they've been unentangled. They've known the way of righteousness, They have known it. It repeats that again. And then they turn from the Holy Commandments. They must have turned to it at some point. So again, I understand the reason that people might want to interpret this in light of, well, this is really talking about false converts. People who appear to be Christians but who really aren't, and they end up 
kind of going back to what they had before. By the way, I'll say this. That's true. I mean, there are people, I do believe there are people who show up, play religion for a while, and then they leave. And there may be any number of reasons they behave that way, social pressures, whatnot. And and they go, and they really were not one of God's people. I do believe that happens. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to deny that. But I don't believe this passage is talking about that phenomenon. It's talking about what can happen to us. That is a frightful passage of Scripture. And it's one that I think we do a disservice when we try to push it over onto other people. We need to recognize the allure of false teaching. There's very few old Baptists I know who would look out across the Christian world and say, well, I just believe if you're not a primitive Baptist, you're going straight to hell because you've got to get it all right like us or you're going to hell. I don't know any primitive Baptists who ever have said that ever. But it's been thrust upon us as our position because we're particular about what we believe and we're, we try to stridently uphold it. And I think that's an unfavorable and, and inaccurate mischaracterization of our position. However, the very fact that we make some of those observations means that I think there are people in this world who have been overturned by false ideas of religion who are out there who we recognize. Those are God's people. Many of them are so soured on the faith once delivered to the saints that they're never going to come to it. They're never going to come to it. Lord Jesus Christ said, take heed what you hear, right? You need to be careful about what you're listening to because you can sit in a circumstance within the broader domain of Christianity and become pickled in false ideas. You can have heard them for decades over and over and over again to such a degree that you have now lost all objectivity. You've lost all capacity to be able to take that idea and hold it out and say, okay, I want to look at this in light of what the Word of God says. It's just soaked into the warp and woof of everything you've regarded as Christianity to such a degree that you really can't assess it anymore. And that's a dangerous state. That's a less severe state, by the way, of what's being described here. I think it's talking about an even greater uh, departure and deception. But we see that at least in an example, right? One of the questions I would want to ask to sustain this is, is there such a thing as making shipwreck of faith? Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and about verse 19. Start in verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Consider who he's talking to. Context is always incredibly important. These things that are said in the Bible are said in a context. They're said from someone to someone, and that has an importance on how you interpret these words. He is telling this to Timothy. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Now, is Timothy a born-again child of God? 
You're not going to have anywhere to go with that other than yes. Timothy is a born-again child of God. He has faith. Paul is affirming his ministry and his call to the ministry and trying to equip him to do the business of ministry. He's talking to a regenerate person and he's warning him about something. You see how that's meaningful? Now look, if these things cannot befall a regenerate child of God, then there's no reason to warn them about it, right? We don't believe that you can do something to become unborn again, okay? The Bible never warns anyone to do this or you'll be unborn again. That just doesn't happen because it's not even possible. You couldn't do something to be unelected by God. You follow me? That's why there's no warnings. Don't do this or you'll be unelected. So it's important to recognize that this is, this is Paul talking to Timothy, who is a regenerate child of God, and he's warning him about the potential of making shipwreck of faith. Now, if you don't have a ship, you can't have a shipwreck. You follow me? And anybody ever had a shipwreck? Uh, it's like, well, I had my boat sank, but I don't really have a boat. So you've got to have a boat to have your boat sink in that sense. And in, in the sense of faith, you can't make shipwreck of faith if you don't have faith. Right? See what I'm saying? You've got to have the ship of faith in order for you to run it aground somewhere or to sink it. This is talking about something that God's people can do. And there are instances of it in the Bible, many of them, and they're disturbing. They're so disturbing that I think many people in their doctrine, they kind of have to turn a blind eye to them or they have to try to explain them away a little bit because the ramifications of them are just incredibly disturbing. The example I always like to give, it's been a while since we've actually looked at the text, but 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, Solomon wrote portions of the Bible. We agree with that? That is very broadly agreed upon. Some of the uh, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, etc. These are things written by Solomon. Peter said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So when you're dealing with Solomon, you are hemmed in on the matter of whether or not he was a regenerate child of God. There's nowhere to go with it. If you say Solomon was not a child of God, look at all the horrible things he did. Maybe he wasn't a child of God. Well, you've got a problem. Because the 66 book canon of the Bible has to be fixed if that's true. Because Solomon wrote some of those books. He wrote some of those psalms. And Peter said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If Solomon's stuff is in the Bible, he was a holy man of God, and therefore, you're talking about what happened to him as something that happened to a regenerate child of God, and it is tremendously objectionable. I mean, if you think about someone you know who is a wise person, a wise Christian, let's say. Who's the wisest Christian you've ever met in your life? And then you found out this was a testimony that occurred in his life? It would be very, very disturbing. That's why Solomon's example is so disturbing. Chapter 11, verse 1, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you. Now, Solomon's life is one of those examples from the Old Testament. God warned Israel about mixing with other people. This was very clearly told to them when they moved into the land of Canaan. Don't take these Canaanite women for your wives. Don't do that. Don't marry in with those people. This was God's arrangement for them, and it was broadly disregarded in Israel. They just said, eh, they're here. They're good looking. They're available. Let's go. Surely God would not forsake His people, or surely He would not deny us this thing that we want to have. By the carnal eye, it seems very good, right? Seems fine to me. They have attractive, young, healthy daughters, and we have young men, and we want to farm this land and do all these things. Let's, let's just go after it. Let's do it. That's what they did, and now we're beginning to see some of the bitter fruit that grew as a result of that. It has softened Solomon's disposition with respect to these things to such a degree now that he's decided, I'm just going to go after all these women. That's what I'm going to do. That's what he wanted to do. One of the sad things that I've come to realize, I think it's one of those universal truths of life, people do what they want to do. They do what they want to do. Solomon wanted to do this on some level. His carnal mind was saying, this is something I want to do. Reasonable people understand how that sort of urge overcomes people and why they would want to think that way. And that's what happened. But Solomon was a child of God, a regenerate man. He is not immune to being deceived and having his carnal mind allured by things of the flesh. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. See, there's something more here than just, well, it's just a physical thing, right? They're beautiful women. You're a man. It's not just that. There's something spiritual underneath all this. It's more than just that. It's like they're actually going to turn you towards their gods in all this. It's more than a casual sexual recreation practice here. It is a religious matter. By turning from what God had set up and turning towards this carnality, it's not just on that level. There's a religious level here, which is you're turning from God and you are now throwing in with the gods of this world. Verse 3, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. The pursuit of this type of carnality in such an open and gregarious way is instrumental in just turning someone's heart away from God. Because you know what? If you're retaining God in your mind, it's going to be very difficult for you to roam around in the garden of earthly delights that he was trying to create for himself here. You see that? If you're going to try to enter into this enjoyment, if you will, you're going to have to try to put God out of your mind. That's going to be a thought you don't want to entertain. 
No, I want to think about the party and what's going on here and all that sort of stuff. I don't want to think about God. I'm going to try to put God out of my mind. Now, I suspect that if you're honest with yourself, you're going to be able to audit your own life and find some instances where, yeah, there were times when I I thought I'm going to just kind of put God out of my thoughts for a little while. Very dangerous thing. People begin to think, well, I can manage that for a season. Well, I'll just do this on Tuesday night and then we'll be right back to church on Sunday. Those kind of things can happen. But the warning that we have in Peter is like, you get allured into these things, you may not be able to extract yourself from what goes on here. People get caught up in this stuff in a way that they don't extract themselves. I believe this happened to Solomon. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. This is when Solomon was old. Now, I mean, sometimes you might think, well, you know, people are young. They go out and sow their wild oats. You know, that's normal. That's what our society says. I'm not saying we affirm that, but that, you hear that a lot in society. They go out and get wild for a while, and then they've got to settle down. That is said a lot. And maybe there's some kind of sense that, well, uh, young people are foolish in that regard and may be able to do that or, or prone to do that, I should say. This is after he's old. Like, this is an old guy making this mistake, which makes it doubly disturbing. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. He's setting up a false religion here. I mean, imagine if the greatest Christian elder in the church you've ever known, who you'd heard stand in this pulpit and preach some of the most glorious things you've ever heard, if the news report came that he went somewhere else, took up 700 wives, and was building temples of worship for false gods, you would be absolutely blown away by it. It would be astonishing, shocking, Perhaps more shocking is the reality that this is a born-again child of God who does this. This is in the Bible for a reason. And the reason is not so that false converts might be exposed. The reason being to keep us from toying around with sin and thinking it's a trivial matter and thinking it doesn't have that degree of allure on us. It most certainly does goes on to say, And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, that's a false god, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Imagine an elder building in your community some sort of pagan worship temple with Chemosh in there. And he's bringing people in to worship Chemosh. By the way, these worship services for a lot of these false gods were just basically sexual orgies. That's what they were. It's not like they come in here and they have their song service and they prayer requests and stuff like that. It's just total hedonism. It's an atrocity. This is something a child of God fell into. That's a very stern warning for us and one we should all be aware of. A lot of this, I think, gets raised or people 
want to reject this interpretation of uh, 2 Peter 2, 20-22 because they have a false conception of the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Like, I believe that God has absolutely foreordained that God's people will behave in a certain way to some requisite degree of holiness. That is not true. And if that's what people mean by the perseverance of the saints, it is incorrect. Now, I have a lot I want to say about the idea of preservation versus perseverance, and I'm not going to get to it in this sermon. Maybe I'll cover that in the next sermon, but I'll briefly say this. This whole issue of the falling away and defining things as the big sins are the ones we're really talking about. Somebody falls into something like what Solomon did here. You know, well, they could never do that. Well, the trouble with that view is, first of all, where do you set the bar on what falls into the category of the big sins that someone could not persist in, right? People who support this doctrine, they never will define that for you because there's no such thing in the Bible. It doesn't say that. What the Bible says is that man at his best state is altogether vanity. So no matter where you set that bar, whether it's very high and only the worst possible sins would fall into that category, or whether you set it very low, the reality is that any sin you commit is sufficient to send you to hell, right? Any lack of repentance anywhere in your life is sufficient. They're playing a word game when they do that. And so we need to be careful about that. It's all about where do you set the bar and then who gets to set the bar. And I'm just saying these things don't exist in the Bible. What exists in the Bible is a warning against just how far you can fall in terms of making shipwreck of faith. And it's a very stern warning, one that's very troubling. But let me provide a word of comfort here. Let's, let's close in 2 Timothy, because I think this summarizes the matter in a way that's helpful. I mean, if you're going to somehow rest your eternal salvation on some requisite degree of performance in holiness, you're saying in some respect that what Christ did was not enough, Right? What Christ did was not enough, and so therefore you've got to achieve some requisite degree of holiness in your life and keep it persistent throughout your life. Otherwise, you're not going to make it to heaven. And that's problematic at its face, but I think that's what a lot of people are doing. However, we find this statement made in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. And we'll close on this. It is a faithful saying... For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. Now, the way that you are dead with Him and that you live with Him is codified in God's covenant. You're named in covenant. When Christ died, you were involved in that death by covenant. You're involved in His resurrection by covenant. You are a named beneficiary of Christ's testament. Right? If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Look, we're going to have suffering in this world, and we are to comfort ourselves by recognizing, yeah, Christ suffered. We're going to have to suffer some. But we're also going to reign with Him. It's maybe bad here for a season, but we're going to reign with Him. If we deny Him, 
He also will deny us. That's speaking of in temporal matters. There are blessings in this life that every single one of us have missed out on through disobedience. That's just all there is to it. That's all there is to it. I've had conversations with people who are struggling to attend church and, and then come to church on an occasion when they're not there and something was said from this pulpit that I think, they missed out on that. There was a blessing that God delivered to a place they were supposed to be and they're struggling with depression and having a sour heart about this, that, or the other thing or something said that would have blessed them tremendously. And they didn't hear it. You know what that means? That means their disobedience in the matter cut them off. It denied them. The Lord, in that sense, through your own disobedience, I have now denied you the blessing that you would have otherwise had. It happens all the time. You could go through your life and find any number of ways that you persisted in some measure of disobedience and you were cut off from manifold spiritual blessings. There's a location that God has set up. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ established the New Testament church. He didn't establish it for nothing, right? He didn't set it up and expect that God, that His people shouldn't attend it and be involved in it and participate in it. That's not the case at all. But there's untold Christians out there today who just think, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't have any sort of affiliation with any church anywhere. And, you know, I'm just going to be a lone wolf out there. You ought to seek the Lord's church, or otherwise you're going to find yourself uh, being denied some of the blessings that are available to you in the institution the Lord Jesus Christ founded. Right? But here's the word of comfort. This is the word of comfort to all of us who have been honest enough to see our own unfaithfulness, to see our frailty and our weakness, And to know that if our salvation was based on my consistent application of faith in all measures at all times and making sure I had repented from every single sin I've ever committed, I don't even know all the sins I've committed. How could I possibly, legitimately, incredibly repent of every single one of them? When we think that our performance is involved in these things and our application of faith and our steadfastness, if we think that's instrumental in our eternal salvation, we're prone to being deceived on the matter. However, the Bible teaches this. If we believe not, you know, there's some people who say, well, if you're a regenerate person, you can't not believe. I've heard that said before. You could never not believe God. If you don't believe God, then you're not a Christian. (laughs) The Bible's full of examples of regenerate people not believing God. Jesus Christ looked at His regenerate disciples at one point and said, how is it that you have no faith? He's saying, you don't believe me. He's like, how is that possible? I'm the Lord of glory standing before you. I've done all these miracles and you're just astounded. How is it? How can that be? That's what we are. And if we're honest enough to recognize that about ourselves, then you will find great comfort. If we believe not, and you do not believe at times. In some respect, you might say, well, I always believe Jesus is my Savior and all. Okay. However, to the extent that any of us still commit sins, we're still exhibiting some measure of unbelief in our lives. If we believe not, what does he say? 
Yet He will make sure that you are returned to repentance and that you fix the problem before you die. It doesn't say that. Although that's the doctrine. That's the doctrine of perseverance, right? You can go away. You could stray from God, but you can't stray for too long or too far. And ultimately, you will renew your repentance before death because you've got to fix something. Well, what did Jesus fix? Hey, he fixed your sin problem. Right? What does He say? If we believe not yet, He abideth faithful. He's the faithful one. What He's done, got the job done, and that's all there is to it. And even in your frailty and your unbelief, He abideth faithful. And what does it say? He cannot deny Himself. You see what's being said there? What's being said, you in your life may fall into sin. That text says you could fall into incredibly grievous sin. It warns you against it. It is an admonition to avoid being deceived. But you can fall into it. Nevertheless, a child of God's salvation is based on the faith of Christ. It's what He has done. Not the degree to which you have maintained some requisite degree of righteousness. Not at all. And you know why that is? He can't deny Himself. For a child of God to fall into terrible sin, someone who's born again, fallen into sin, it's certainly possible. But if Jesus were to look at that person and say, you know what, as a result of that you're going to hell, it wouldn't be denying that person so much as it would be denying the work that He had done on that person's behalf. Right? He's saying, you're one of my sheep, but look how terrible what you did was. I'm just going to deny the work that I did for you. God never does that. Our eternal salvation is absolutely secure because He cannot deny Himself, and yet we are warned against being deceived by false prophets. It's a serious matter. It explains a lot that goes on in our world today. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.